to CMIO Podcast, a show devoted to educating and informing those who are making healthcare easier for others. Whether you're involved with informatics, analytics, or new technologies that make the lives of our practicing clinicians better, this show is for you. My name is Dr. Mark Weissman, a practicing physician and CMIO, and the host of CMIO Podcast. Today, covering the news to know for the week of September 30th. So let's, let's get to it. The first article comes out of Healthcare IT News, and it's from Bill Sawicki from September 26. How merging financial and clinical data saved Yale New Haven Health $150 million. So the massive undertaking based around a new cost accounting system is all part of a strategy to prepare for value-based reimbursement. I'll keep reading you just a couple of highlights from the article. As the business model for all healthcare organizations continues to shift into a value-based model and operating margins continue to shrink, understanding the true cost of care has become mission critical for the organization. This is a quote from their CFO. It's a challenge to reduce variation, waste, and inefficiency in order to invest in and improve care without any access to trusted data on the cost of care. As part of the health system's $150 million value improvement initiative, Creating a user-friendly, accessible source of truth on the cost of care was essential. Ultimately, the organization needed the right data platform to bring together cost and clinical data in order to understand and improve value. To identify common quality variation indicators, a team of physicians and decision support nurses spent three months reviewing a comprehensive list of hospital-acquired conditions patient safety indicators, and other negative outcomes associated with significant variation in quality across the organization. Oh, let's see what else they say here. Uh, here's an example of one of the things they did. So in one case, spanning the years of 2010 to 2017, uh, Yale was able to drive more consistent, comprehensive care for adults with sickle cell disease reducing the average length of stay from 11.5 days to 5 and cutting remission rates by more than 40%. This resulted in a cumulative financial savings of $12.4 million, which also freed up beds for other patients. And so why do I bring this story up? Well, it partly touches on something that uh, I'm starting to do at, at my organization, was doing at my last organization as well. CMIOs are getting pulled into these cost accounting programs because to get the money, the value out of them, it's reducing variation in care and that will typically involve some informatics and analytics. I think these are really great initiatives. I think the, uh, the systems are very difficult to implement. A true cost accounting system is a major undertaking. Now Yale already had one. This was a replacement that they did and they mentioned the name of a vendor that they used, which I don't think matters. There's a bunch of different vendors out there that can help you with cost accounting systems. But that's a very, very significant undertaking of marrying up that um, uh, the billing data with the, uh, and actually it's not just the billing, it's your cost of materials data and marrying that up with the clinical data. And trying to do that without a cost accounting system is very difficult. It can be done, but usually you'll see it's just going to be done for a short little project in one little area. It's very hard to do that on a system-wide type initiative. So you will be uh, asked to join into these types of ventures. And it's a lot of fun, to be honest, to be able to look at the variation in care and then see how can we 
use order sets or clinical decision support to help reduce that variation. And sometimes it's just a matter of shining a light on it, just showing the providers and putting graphs in front of them showing, hey, this is your utilization of test uh, A, whatever it happens to be, or let's just say it's a respiratory virus panel that, that seems to be all the rage lately and, and your emergency department providers are ordering a bunch of that and you can show the variation between the providers. Well, why does, what are some providers ordering it 30 times a month and some are ordering it once or twice? Clearly, that's just a practice variation unless there's just some really random chance of all these respiratory patients showing up in your ED all at, on one provider shift, which just seems unlikely. So, um, great tools to use. I, I'm strongly a, a fan of them for looking at variation in care, especially when there's no value to the variation. So that's where I think as CMIOs we can get involved and certainly uh, put our, our arms around it and, and encourage these activities when it is about improving patient care. All right, going to jump to a next article here. This one came out of Medical Economics, which is uh, Will New Payment Models Relieve Physician Burnout? It's written by a doctor, Dr. Mark Steffen on September 25th. I'll read you a couple of lines and then give you my thoughts. This is an editorial he wrote, not necessarily news, but I, I really resonates with me with some of the uh, mentions about payment reform that are going on now. So here's a quote. Through my own experiences and conversations with colleagues, I've come to believe that one of the chief reasons primary care physicians feel overwhelmed by patient needs is that too many still practice under the fee-for-service model. As both a workflow and financial model, it simply does not support the effort required to manage complex cases, nor is it conducive to strengthening the physician-patient relationship. The challenge many primary care providers face in shifting to value-based care is that their practices are often not equipped with the tools needed to succeed under value-based models. It is a preventative, multidisciplinary approach to care that places a premium on care coordination. In turn, this requires technology that stratifies and prioritizes care opportunities for at-risk populations and helps providers maximize incentives tied to performance-based contracts. Another line here, it should be understood that transitioning to value-based care won't be an easy shift. To achieve true transformation, practices will require not only new financial models, but new technology, new workflows, additional staff training, and lots of support. By transitioning to new financial models that reward value and quality of care as opposed to volume, primary care practices can escape the fee-for-service hamster wheel and practice medicine in a way that prioritizes the doctor-patient relationship. This came out of Medical Economics. It's a great editorial. If you get a chance, read it. And uh, I agree. I think having practiced primary care for oh, about 19 years now, the, the it is a hamster wheel. and the payment model definitely drives this. When I see providers that are struggling, one of the things I, I notice is there's a certain subset that are overwhelmed because they are trying to see an enormous number of patients. And it's very, very difficult to see that volume of patients when the patients can be incredibly sick, they're coming out of the hospital, they need follow-up care, and you are incentivized to see the cough, colds, and runny noses, which you can do six of those an hour, as opposed to seeing one or two of these really critically ill hospital patients. And the level of reimbursement, it just doesn't make sense. You can, in fee-for-service world, make far more money um, doing an urgent care type environment than you can 
in a, uh, a chronic care model. So the, the payment model is definitely driving some of this burnout. I know people like to blame the EMR. I, there are certainly things the EMR can do to contribute, but I believe the payment model drives it more than the technology. The article talks about the technology that's needed, saying there, there is new technology that's needed to do value-based care. I completely agree. What they don't mention is how expensive and difficult that technology can be to implement. Just getting access to the data that you need that's tucked away, those social determinants of health data that's not readily available, and then the EMR data that's squirreled away in someone else's EMR, the then ability to data aggregate all that together and then put data visualization tools on top of it and having pharmacy transparency so you understand the cost of the medicines and the the tools for uh, communicating with care managers all of that infrastructure most systems do not have in place all of the pieces that are needed for value-based care except for those who are really living in that world like a Kaiser. The rest of us, we have pieces of it, we have our toe dipped into it, but really need to build out that infrastructure to make a proper leap into uh, value-based care. That's my two cents on it. I think it was a great editorial. Another article I like, this was an editorial, it's, uh, I saw it in MedPage today, titled is Sorry to Interrupt You. Attention, unneeded paperwork is draining joy from medicine. And it was written by a doctor, Dr. Fred Pelsman, on September 29th. He starts off by calling it Clinicus Interruptus. And just a small sampling of what he goes through. Here's a quote. Sorry to bother you, Dr. Pelsman, but Mrs. Smith is over in radiology and her breast oncologist ordered a mammogram and a sonogram, but you need to re-enter the order or it won't be covered by her insurance or Mr. Jones made an appointment with a dermatologist and he's over there now, but they refuse to see him until you put in an order and we process it with his insurance company and then fax it to them. And goes on to talk about surgical prior authorizations and all this paperwork that needs to get done that doctors are usually interrupted for during the day because it's urgent at some point because the system's rather inefficient at times and not everything is able to be planned ahead of time. And so just the the drain on brain power, how the uh, difficulty of trying to get through a day and focus on the things that really matter. And some of these things really could be taken care of either by artificial intelligence nurses or even not needed at all. I think is the point of the editorial, and I completely agree with it. Love the uh, editorial. It's a, a great one if you can get your hands on that one at MedPage today. Uh, next article I'm going to talk about, the FDA releases revised draft guidelines on clinical decision support software, the final guidelines on device definitions for software, as well as wellness apps. And here's just a few lines from this one. Um, the uh, first draft guidance came out regarding clinical decision support products that would or would not require direct regulatory oversight from the agency. This is an update to the clinical decision support draft guidelines released in 2017 with a noteworthy addition of a risk-based categorization approach for determining enforcement over these tools. So the items that do not fall within the agency's definition now include things such as electronic patient records 
and apps designed to encourage health and wellness. Clinical decision uh, support software is broadly described by the FDA and ONC as software products that provide professionals and patients with knowledge and person-specific information intelligently filtered or presented at appropriate times to enhance health and health care. So I thought this was an interesting article. Um, yeah, oh, there's an example they give. Let me, uh, let me read this. Uh, as an example of software that would be included, um, software that identifies patients with signs of opioid addiction based on patient-specific data and patterns, but does not explain exactly how, would be considered an oversight-worthy device CDS product, in part because it is intended to inform clinical management for a critical situation or condition. Meanwhile, software for providers that analyzes and services ideal over-the-counter drugs for seasonal allergies, while again not explaining its inputs, would not fall under the mandatory enforcement because it provides treatment options for a non-serious situation or condition. So that's what's new here is the FDA picking and choosing where to put its time, which I think makes great sense. And I think it's good for CMIOs to understand what the FDA is doing in this space. It has no direct impact on us today. I think it is important to recognize that the wellness apps are not going to be regulated. That's kind of an area that's the wild, wild west in terms of risk for the consumer. You have no clue if the info you put into that app stays secure or if the advice on that app is sound. And I do think we will see provider systems coming out with recommendations or reviews for apps in this space to help guide our patients trying to tame that wild, wild west. Um, so, because the FDA, the government's not going to do it good, but then somebody probably will step in and do that. And there are programs out there, if you're not familiar with Zelf, I think it's X-E-A-L-T-H, that that's a piece of software which allows a provider to prescribe an app. So if you want to prescribe your weight loss app, you do that from inside your own EMR, but it integrates with this program called Zelf that tees it up for you. And I think that's a great tool, and we'll see more things like that. Uh, come to market. Next article, uh, let's go to, while we're in the regulatory space, let's cover this other article out of Modern Healthcare from September 25th, and it's about the uh, CMS revised rule that came out cutting some of the regulatory mandates for Medicare and Medicaid providers. It seemed to impact discharge planning, and it also impacts some of the emergency preparedness uh, planning and infection control planning for hospitals. So this is part of CMS's Patients Over Paperwork Initiative, which the agency created in 2017 as a response to President Donald Trump's request to cut red tape. Most notably, it lets health systems share a single centralized staff for quality assessment, performance improvement, and infection control programs across several hospitals. Health systems were previously required to have separate staff for each certified hospital, which hurt some smaller systems. Hospitals will be uh, able to conduct reviews of their emergency preparedness plan every other year rather than annually. The rule provides additional regulatory relief for home health agencies, ambulatory surgical centers, and critical access hospitals. Uh, here, let's get to the discharge planning rule. The discharge planning rule requires hospitals and critical access hospitals to evaluate patients that are likely to experience adverse health consequences and create a discharge plan if necessary. They must also assess patients for discharge planning if a patient, their representative, or physician requests it. Hospitals 
and home health agencies will need to provide specific medical information when they transfer patients to another facility. So my take on all this, I am incredibly underwhelmed. It does nothing to reduce the burden on the practicing physician. Where are the improvements in prior authorization? And how about reducing our documentation burden, particularly around when I have to go do a home health uh, authorization? And how about efforts to reduce note bloat and this silly system we have in place around who's an observation patient versus who's an inpatient? I just remain underwhelmed by this regulatory move. I think it's, it does help some hospitals. There are some other things in here that you, I think, will find are disastrous for your hospital system, particularly since there was something I read in here about ambulatory surgery centers are no longer required to have a transfer agreement with a hospital. These, that agreement was typically used to help hospitals keep providers engaged with their system and help with call arrangements. So if I can do all my surgery in an ambulatory surgery center, and I don't need to take call at my hospital, well, I'll, I'll probably drop out of the call, I'll drop my privileges at the hospital. If I don't have a mandatory transfer agreement, well, why do I need to stay involved with the hospital? So, some dangers in this uh, rule, nothing terribly uh, exciting in it from my standpoint. Next, I've got how mobile devices can improve the pediatric care experience. And this article uh, came out of Health Tech magazine. It's an online magazine. And came out September 24th by Gus Valhos. I like this article. I'll read you a couple of lines here about some of the things children hospitals are doing um, around digital. At Cincinnati Children's Hospital, patients may check out Apple iPad devices for education and entertainment distractions. Separately, Fitbit activity trackers have been introduced as part of a clinical trial at Children's Hospital Los Angeles to help families enhance a structured weight loss program in an inviting and manageable way. Seattle Children's has introduced iPads to facilitate childcare and relieve anxiety. The tablets operate not only as comforting mechanisms for entertainment, but also as an educational tool to help a child care specialist explain medical procedures or treatments to patients. In Danville, PA, the Geisinger uh, Children's Hospital has placed tablets bedside so that patients, along with their family members, have immediate access to their medical chart instead of waiting for nurses to make their rounds. Parents can log into an app on the tablet that provides updated information on care schedules, procedures, tests, and expected discharge date. So as CMIOs, are you planning your digital strategy? Hopefully you are. Hopefully you're considering either a bring your own device or to provide devices for patients. I think with the cost of tablets coming down, more of us are looking at bringing the devices. They're now retailing for under $100 for a tablet. You're going to have to put some good cases on them. They have to be able to be cleaned. And I think it's probably easier to hand someone a device than trying to get them to download your app and making sure they have the right version, that their software is up to date. So handing them a device may just be easier. But I'm excited that more systems are moving into this digital space around patient engagement. It's great stuff. And I hope you all are looking at it as well. My final article here is, it was National Health IT Week. Uh, that was last week, and so 
uh, if you missed it and are late to celebrate, well, go ahead and celebrate now and, and put it on your calendar for next year. Uh, take a moment, reflect, and enjoy all that informatics has done to be a part of your job as a CMIO. I know that uh, it's a big deal for me, and uh, I love what I do, and I know many of you that I have been in contact with also love what you do as well. So happy belated National Health uh, IT Week. And that's the news for, for this week. Um, we have a really interesting podcast coming out uh, later this week from class. We will go over some of the uh, initiatives from the Arch Collaborative. I think you'll really look forward to that. That'll be on Thursday. So that's our show for today. Thank you for listening to CMIO Podcast. I've been your host, Dr. Mark Weissman. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn or email me at cmiopodcast at gmail.com. Go to the website at cmiopodcast.com. Send me your ideas for shows, guests you would like to hear from, general feedback, or just to connect. And I look forward to bringing you our next episode.